Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of Mark Twain's Letters from Hawaii. All books that Uvula Audio presents are in the public domain. Volume 9. Letter 20. Kealakakua Bay, 1866. Great Britain's Queer Monument to Captain Cook. When I digressed from my personal narrative to write about Cook's death, I left myself solitary, hungry, and dreary, smoking in the little warehouse at Kealakakua Bay. Brown was out somewhere gathering up a fresh lot of specimens, having already discarded those he had dug out of the old lava flow during the afternoon. I soon went to look for him. He had returned to the great slab of lava upon which Cook stood when he was murdered and was absorbed in maturing a plan for blasting it out and removing it to his home as a specimen. Deeply pained at the bare thought of such a sacrilege, I reprimanded him severely and at once removed him from the scene of temptation. We took a walk then, the rain having moderated considerably. We clambered over the surrounding lava field through masses of weeds and stood for a moment upon the doorstep of an ancient ruin, the house once occupied by the aged king of Hawaii. And I reminded Brown that that very stone step was the one across which Captain Cook drew the reluctant old king when he turned his footsteps for the last time toward his ship. I checked a movement on Mr. Brown's part. No, I said, just let it remain. Seek specimens of a less hallowed nature than this historical stone. We also strolled along the beach toward the precipice of Kealakekua and gazed curiously at the semicircular holes high up in its face. Graves they are of ancient kings and chiefs and wondered how the natives ever managed to climb from the sea up the sheer wall and make those holes and deposit their packages of patrician bones in them. Tramping about in the rear of the warehouse, we suddenly came across another object of interest. It was a coconut stump, four or five feet high and about a foot in diameter at its butt. It had lava boulders piled around its base to hold it up and keep it in place, and it was entirely sheathed over from top to bottom with rough, discolored sheets of copper, such as ships' bottoms are coppered with. Each sheet had a rude inscription scratched upon it, with a nail, apparently, and in every case the execution was wretched. It was almost dark by this time, and the inscriptions would have been difficult to read even at noonday, but with patience and industry I finally got them all in my notebook, and they read as follows. Near this spot fell Captain James Cook, the distinguished circumnavigator who discovered these islands A.D. 1778, His Majesty's ship Emma Jane, October 17, 1837. Parties from H.M. Ship Vixen visited this spot January 25, 1858. This sheet and capping put on by Sparrowhawk September 16, 1839 in order to preserve this monument to the memory of Cook. Captain Montressor and officers of HMS Calypso visited this spot the 18th of October, 1858. This tree having fallen was replaced on this spot by HMSV Cormorant, G.T. Gordon Esquire, Captain, who visited this bay May 18, 1846. This bay was visited July 4, 1843, by HMS Carysfort, the Right Honorable Lord George Paulette, Captain, to whom, as the representative of Her Britannic Majesty, Queen Victoria, these islands were ceded, February 25, 1843. After Cook's murder, his second-in-command on board the ship opened fire upon the swarms of natives on the beach, and one of his cannonballs cut this coconut tree short off and left this monumental stump standing. It looked sad and lonely enough out there in the rainy twilight, but there was no other monument to Captain Cook. True, up on the mountainside we had passed by a large enclosure, like an ample hog pen built of lava bricks, which marks the spot where Cook's flesh was stripped from his bones and burned, but this is not properly a monument since it was erected by the natives themselves, and less to do honor to the circumnavigator than for the sake of convenience in roasting him. A thing like a guideboard was elevated above this pen on a tall pole, and formerly there was an inscription upon it, 
describing the memorable occurrence that had taken place there, but the sun and the wind had long ago so defaced it as to render it illegible. Music soothes the sad and the lonely. The sky grew overcast and the night settled down gloomily, and Brown and I went and sat on the little wooden pier, saying nothing, for we were tired and hungry and did not feel like talking. There was no wind. The drizzling, melancholy rain was still falling, and not a sound disturbed the brooding silence save the distant roar of the surf and the gentle washing of the waveless against the rocks at our feet. We were very lonely. No sign of the vessel. She was still becalmed at sea, no doubt. After an hour of sentimental meditation, I bethought me of working upon the feelings of my comrade. The surroundings were in every way favorable to the experiment. I concluded to sing, partly because music so readily touches the tender emotions of the heart, and partly because the singing of pathetic ballads and such things is an art which I have been said to excel in. In a voice tremulous with feeling, I began, Mid pleasures and palaces, though we may roam, be it ever so humble, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's. My poor friend rose up slowly and came and stood beside me and said, Now look here, Twain. It ain't no time and it ain't no place for you to be going on that way. I'm hungry and I'm tired and I'm wet and I ain't going to be put upon and aggravated when I'm so miserable. If you was to start in on any more yowling like that, I'd shove you overboard. I would, by Jiminy. Poor vulgar creature, I said to myself. He knows no better. I have not the heart to blame him. How sad a lot is his, and how much he is to be pitied, and that his soul is dead to the heavenly charms of music. I cannot sing for this man. I cannot sing for him while he has that dangerous calm in his voice at any rate. Hunger driveth to desperate enterprises. We spent another hour in silence and in profound depression of spirits. It was so gloomy and still and lonesome, with nothing human anywhere near save those bundles of dry, kingly bones hidden in the face of the cliff. Finally, Brown said it was hard to have to sit still and starve with plenty of delicious food and drink just beyond our reach. Rich young coconuts. And I said, What an idiot you are not to have thought of it before. Get up and stir yourself. In five minutes we shall have a feast and be jolly and contented again. The thought was cheering in the last degree, and in a few moments we were in the grove of cocoa palms, and their ragged plumes were dimly visible through the wet haze high above our heads. I embraced one of the smooth, slender trunks with the thought of climbing it, but it looked very far to the top, and of course there were no knots or branches to assist the climber. And so I sighed and walked sorrowfully away. Thunder, what was that? I said. It was only Brown. He had discharged a prodigious lava block at the top of the tree, and it fell back to the earth with a crash that tore up the dead silence of the place like an avalanche. As soon as I understood the nature of the case, I recognized the excellence of his idea. I said as much to Brown and told him to fire another volley. I cannot throw lava blocks with any precision, never having been used to them and therefore I apportioned our labor with that fact in view, and signified to Brown that he would only have to knock the coconuts down. I would pick them up myself. Brown let drive another boulder, and went singing through the air and just grazed a cluster of nuts hanging fifty feet above the ground. Well done, I said. Try it again. And he did so, and the result was precisely the same. Well done again, I said. Move your hind side a shade to the left. Let her have it again. Brown sent another boulder hurtling through the dingy air. Too much elevation just passed over the coconut tuft. Steady, lad. You scatter too much. Now, one, two, fire. The next missile clove through the tuft, and a couple of long, slender leaves came floating down to the earth. Good, I said. Depress your piece a line. Brown paused and panted like an exhausted dog, and then wiped some perspiration from his face. A quart of it, he said and discarded his coat and vest and cravat. The next shot fell short, and he said, I'm letting down. 
Them large boulders are monstrous responsible rocks to send up there, but they're rough on the arms. He then sent a dozen smaller stones in quick succession after the fruit, and some of them struck in the right places, but the result was nothing. I said he should stop and rest a while. Oh, never mind. I don't care to take any advantage. I don't want to rest until you do, but it's singular to me how you always happen to divide up the work the way you do. I'm to knock him down and you're to pick him up. I'm of the opinion that you're going to wear yourself down just to nothing but skin and bones on this trip if you ain't more careful. Oh, don't mind about me resting. I can't be tired. I hove only about 11 tons of rocks up there into that liberty pole. Mr. Brown, I'm surprised at you. This is mutiny. Oh, well, I don't care what it is. Mutiny is sass or what you please. I'm so hungry, I don't care for nothing now. It was on my lips to correct his loathsome grammar, but I considered the dire extremity he was in and withheld the deserved reproof. After some time spent in mutely longing for the coveted fruit, I suggested to Brown that maybe he should climb the tree and I hold his hat. His hunger was so great he finally concluded to try it. His exercise had made him ravenous, but the experiment was not a success. With infinite labor and a great deal of awkwardly constructed swearing, he managed to get up about thirty feet, and then he came to an uncommonly smooth place and began to slide slowly but surely back down. He clasped the tree with his arms and legs and tried to save himself, but he had got too much stern way and the thing was impossible. He dragged for a few feet and then shot down like an arrow. It's taboo, he said sadly. Let's go back to the pier. The transom in my trousers is all fetched away and the legs of them are riddled with rags and ribbons. Wish I was drunk or dead or something. Anything so as to be out of this misery. I glanced over my shoulders as we walked along and observed that some of the clouds had parted and left a dim, lighted doorway through to the skies beyond. In this place, as an ebony frame, our majestic palm stood up and reared its graceful crest aloft. The slender stem was a clean black line, the feathers of the plume, some erect and some projecting horizontally, and some drooping a little and others hanging languidly down toward the earth, were all sharply cut against the smooth gray background. A beautiful, beautiful tree is the cocoa palm, I said fervently. I don't see it said Brown resentfully. People that haven't clumb one are always dribbling about how pretty it is. And when they make pictures of these hot countries, they always shove one of the ragged things into the foreground. I don't see what there is about it that's handsome. Looks like a feather duster stuck with lightning. Perceiving that Brown's mutilated pantaloons were disturbing his gentle spirit, I said no more. Providentially saved from starvation. Toward midnight, a native boy came down from the uplands to see if the boomerang had got in yet, and we chartered him for subsistence service. For the sum of twelve and a half cents in coin, he agreed to furnish coconuts, enough for a dozen men at five minutes' notice. He disappeared into the murky atmosphere, and a few seconds later, we saw a little black object, like a rat, running up our tall tree and pretty distinctly defined against the light place in the sky. It was our kanaka, and he performed his contract without tearing his clothes. But then again, he had none on, except those he was born in. He brought five large nuts and tore the tough green husks off with his strong teeth and thus prepared the fruit for use. We perceived then that it was about as well that we had failed in our endeavors, as we never could have gnawed the husks off. I would have kept Brown trying, though, as long as he had any teeth. We punched the eye holes out and drank the sweet and at the same time pungent milk of two of the nuts, and our hunger and thirst were satisfied. The boy broke them open, and we ate some of the mushy white paste inside for pastime, but we had no real need of it. After a while, a fine breeze sprang up, and the schooner worked its way into the bay and cast anchor. The boat came ashore for us, and in a little while, the clouds and rain were gone. The moon was beaming tranquilly down on the land and sea, and we too were stretched upon the deck, sleeping the refreshing sleep and dreaming the happy dreams that are only vouchsafed to the weary and the innocent. Mark Twain
Letter 21 Kealakakua Bay, July 1866 A Funny Scrap of History In my last letter, I spoke of the old coconut stump, all covered with copper plates, bearing inscriptions commemorating the visits of various British naval commanders to Captain Cook's death place at Kealakakua Bay. The most magniloquent of these is left by the Right Honorable Lord George Paulette, to whom, as the representative of Her Britannic Majesty Queen Victoria, the Sandwich Islands were ceded February 25, 1843. Lord George, if he is alive yet, would like to tear off that plate and destroy it, no doubt. He was fearfully snubbed by his government shortly afterwards for his acts as Her Majesty's representative upon the occasion to which he refers with such manifest satisfaction. A pestilent fellow by the name of Charlton had been Great Britain's counsel to Honolulu for many years. He seems to have employed his time by sweating, fuming, and growling about everything and everybody, in acquiring property by devious and inscrutable ways, in blackguarding the Hawaiian government and the missionaries, in scheming for the transfer of the islands to the British crown, in getting the king drunk and laboring to keep him so, in working to secure a foothold for the Catholic religion when its priests had been repeatedly forbidden by the king to settle in the country, in promptly raising thunder every time an opportunity offered, and in making himself prominently disagreeable and a shining nuisance at all times. You will thus perceive that Charlton had a good deal of business on his hands. There was a heap of trouble on the old man's mind. He was sued in the courts upon one occasion for a debt of long standing amounting to 3,000 pounds and judgment rendered against him. This made him lively. He swore like an army in Flanders, but it was to no avail. The case was afterwards carefully examined twice, once by a commission of distinguished English gentlemen and once by the law officers of the British Crown, and the Hawaiian court's decision was sustained in both instances. His property was attached and one Skinner, a relative who had $10,000 in the bank, got ready to purchase it when it should be sold at execution. So far, so good. Several other English residents had been worsted in lawsuits. They and Charlton became loud in their denunciation of what they termed a want of justice in the Hawaiian courts. The suits were all afterwards examined by the law officers of the British Crown and the Hawaiian courts sustained as in Charlton's case. Charlton got disgusted and wrote a sassy letter to the king and left suddenly for England, conferring his consulate for the time being upon a kindred spirit named Simpson, a bitter traducer of the Hawaiian government, an officer whom the government at once refused to recognize. Charlton left with Simpson a demand upon the government for possession of a large and exceedingly valuable tract of land in Honolulu, alleged to have been transferred to him by a deed duly signed by a native gentleman who had never owned the property and whose character for probity was such that no one would believe he would ever have been guilty of such a proceeding. Charity compels us to presume that the versatile Charlton forged the deed. The boundaries, if specified, were kind of vaguely defined. It contained no mention of a consideration for value received. It had been held in abeyance and unmentioned for twenty years and its signers and witnesses were long since dead. It was a shaky instrument altogether. On his way to England, Charlton met with my Lord George in a queen's ship and laid his grievances before him and then went on. My Lord sailed straight to Honolulu and began to make trouble. Under threats of bombarding the town, he compelled the king to make the questionable deed good to the person having charge of Charlton's property interest and demanded the reception of the new council, and demanded that all those suits, a great number which had been decided adversely to Englishmen, including many which had been settled by amicable arbitration between the parties, should be tried over again, and by juries composed entirely of Englishmen. Although the written law provided that half the panel should be English, and therefore, of course, the demand could not be complied with without a tyrannical assumption of power by the king, he stopped the seizure and sale of Charlton's property. He brought in a little bill, gotten up by the newly created and promptly emasculated Council Simpson, for $117,000 and some odd charge enough to bust the Hawaiian exchequer two or three times over, to use a popular missionary term. 
for all manner of imaginary damages sustained by British subjects at diverse and sundry times, and among the items was one demanding $3,000 to indemnify Skinner for having kept his $10,000 lying idle for four months, expecting to invest it in Charlton's property, and then not getting a chance to do it on account of Lord George having stopped the sale. An exceedingly nice party was Lord George, take him all around. For days and nights together, the unhappy Kamehameha III was in bitterest distress. He could not pay the bill, and the law gave him no power to comply with the other demands. He and his ministers of state pleaded for mercy, for time to remodel the laws to suit the emergency, but Lord George refused steadfastly to accede to either request, and finally, in tribulation and sorrow, the king told him to take the islands to do with them as he would. He knew no other way. His government was too weak to maintain its rights against Great Britain. And so Lord George took them and set up his government and hauled down the Royal Hawaiian Ensign and hoisted the English colors over the archipelago. And the sad king notified his people of the event in a proclamation which is touching in its simple eloquence. Where are you, chiefs, people, and commons from my ancestors and people from foreign lands? Hear ye, I make known to you that I am in perplexity by reason of difficulties, into which I have been brought without cause. Therefore I have given away the life of our land, hear ye. But my rule over you, my people, and your privileges will continue, for I have hope that the life of the island will be restored when my conduct is justified. Kamehameha Third. And then I suppose my Lord George Paulette, temporarily king of the Sandwich Islands, when complacently skirmishing around his dominions in his ship and feeding fat on glory, for we find him four months later visiting Kalalakakua Bay and nailing his rusty sheet of copper to the memorial stump set up to glorify the great cook, and imagining no doubt that his visit had conferred immortality upon a name which had only possessed celebrity before. But my lord's happiness was not to last long. His superior officer, Rear Admiral Thomas arrived at Honolulu a week or two afterwards, and as soon as he understood the case, he immediately showed the new government the door and restored Kamehameha to all his ancient powers and privileges. It was the 31st of July, 1843. There was immense rejoicing on Honolulu that day. The Hawaiian flag was flung up to the breeze. The king and as many of his people as could get into the great stone church went there to pray, and the balance got drunk. The 31st of July is Independence Day in the Sandwich Islands, and consequently, in these times, there are two grand holidays on the islands in the month of July. The Americans celebrate the 4th with great pomp and circumstance, and the natives outdo them if they can on the 31st, and the speeches disgorged upon both occasions are regularly inflicted in cold blood upon the people by the newspapers that have a dreary fashion of coming out just a level week after one has forgotten any given circumstance they talk about. A Lucrative Office When I woke up on the schooner's deck in the morning, the sun was shining down right fervently. Everybody was astir and Brown was gone. Gone in a canoe to Captain Cook's side of the bay, the captain said. I took a boat and landed on the opposite shore at the port of entry. There was a house there, I mean a foreigner's house, and near it were some native grass huts. The collector of this port of entry not only enjoys the dignity of office, but has emoluments as well. That makes it very nice, of course. He gets five dollars for boarding every foreign ship that stops there, and two more for filling out certain blanks attesting such a visit. As many as three foreign ships stop there in a single year sometimes, yet Notwithstanding this wild rush of business, the late collector of the port committed suicide several months ago. The foreign ships which visit this place are whalers in quest of water and potatoes. The present collector lives back somewhere, has a den up in the mountains several thousand feet, but he comes down fast enough when a ship heaves into sight. Washoe Men I found two Washoe men at the house, but I was not surprised. I believe if a man were to go to perdition itself, he would find Washoe men there, though not so thick, maybe, as in the other place. The Holy Place Two hundred yards from the house was the ruins of the pagan temple of Lono, 
so desecrated by Captain Cook when he was pretending to be that deity. Its low, rude walls look about as they did when he saw them, no doubt. In a coconut grove near at hand is a tree with a hole through its trunk, said to have been made by a cannonball fired from one of the ships at a crowd of natives immediately after Cook's murder. It is a very good hole. The Hero of the Sunday School Books The chief cook of this temple, the priest who presided over it and roasted the human sacrifices, was uncle to Ubukia, and at one time that youth was an apprentice priest under him. Ubukia was a young native of fine mind who, together with three other native boys, was taken to New England by the captain of a whale ship during the reign of Kamehameha I, and were the means of attracting the attention of the religious world to their country and putting it into their heads to send missionaries there. And this Ubukia was the very same sensitive savage who sat down on the church steps and wept because his people did not have the Bible. That incident had been very elaborately painted in many a charming Sunday school book. I and told so plaintively and so tenderly that I have cried over it in Sunday school myself, on general principles, although at a time when I did not know much and could not understand why the people of the Sandwich Islands need care a cent about it as long as they did not know there was a Bible at all. This was the same Ubukia, this was the very same old Bukia, this was the very same old Ubukia, so I reflected, and gazed upon the ruined temple with a new and absorbing interest. Here that gentle spirit worshipped. Here he sought the better life after his rude fashion. On this stone, perchance, he sat down with his sacred lasso to wait for a chance to rope in some neighbor for holy sacrifice. On this altar, possibly, he broiled his venerable grandfather and presented the rare offering before the high priest, who may have said, Well done, good and faithful servant. That filled me with emotion. Kanui the Unfortunate Ubukia was converted and educated and was to have returned to his native land with the first missionaries had he lived. The other native youths made the voyage, and two of them did good service. But the third, William Canoey, fell from grace afterwards for a time, and when the gold excitement broke out in California, he journeyed thither and went to mining, although he was 50 years old. He succeeded pretty well, but the failure of Page, Bacon, and Company relieved him of $6,000, and then, to all intents and purposes, he was a bankrupt community. Thus, after all his toils, all his privations, and all his faithful endeavors to gather together a competence, the blighting hand of poverty was laid upon him in his old age, and he had to go back to preaching again. One cannot but feel sad to contemplate such afflictions as these cast upon a creature so innocent and deserving. And finally he died. Night in Honolulu in 1864. The Reverend Mr. Damon's paper referring, in the obituary notice, to Page Bacon's unpaid certificates of deposit in the unhappy man's possession observes that, quote, he departed this life leaving the most substantial and gratifying evidence that he was prepared to die, unquote. And so he was, poor fellow, so he was. He was cleaned out, as you may say, and was prepared to go. He was all ready and prepared. Page Bacon had attended to that for him. All he had to do was to shed his mortal coil. And then he was all right. Poor, poor old sad fella. One's heart bleeds for him. For some time after his bereavement in the matter of finances, he helped Reverend M. Rowell to carry on the Bethel Church in San Francisco and gave excellent satisfaction for a man who was so out of practice. Sleep in peace, poor tired soul. You were out of luck many a time in your long, checkered life, but you are safe now where care and sorrow and trouble can never assail you any more. Temple to the Rain God Quite a broad tract of land near that port of entry, extending from the sea to the mountaintop, was sacred to the god Lono in olden times, so sacred that if a common native set his sacrilegious foot upon it, it was time for him to make his will because his time was come. He might go around it by water, but he could not cross it. It was well sprinkled with pagan temples and stocked with awkward homely idols carved out of logs of wood. There was a temple devoted to prayers for rain and with 
rare sagacity, it was placed at a point so well up on the mountainside that if you prayed there 24 hours a day for rain, you would likely get it every time. You would seldom get to your amen before you would have to hoist your umbrella. The House Built by the Dead Men There was a large temple near at hand which was built in a single night in the midst of storm and thunder and rain by the ghastly hands of dead men. Tradition says that by the weird glare of the lightning a noiseless multitude of phantoms were seen at their strange labor far up the mountainside in the dead of night, flitting hither and thither and bearing great lava blocks clasped in their nerveless fingers, appearing and disappearing as the fitful lightning fell upon their pallid forms and faded away again. Even to this day, it's said, the natives hold this dread structure in awe and reverence and will not pass it by in the night. Venus at the Bath At noon I observed a bevy of nude native young ladies bathing in the sea, and I went down to look at them. But with a prudery which seems to be characteristic of that sex everywhere, they all plunged in with a lying scream, and when they rose to the surface, they only just poked their heads out and showed no disposition to proceed any farther in the same direction. I was naturally irritated by such conduct, and therefore I piled my clothes up on a boulder at the edge of the sea and went down to them and kept the winches in the water until they were pretty well used up. I had them in the door, as the missionaries say. I was comfortable, and I just let them beg. I thought I would freeze them out, maybe, but it was impractical. I finally gave it up and went away, hoping that the rebuke I had given them would not be lost upon them. I went and undressed and went in myself. And then they went out. I never saw such singular perversity. Shortly a party of children of both sexes came floundering around me, and then I quit and left the Pacific Ocean in their possession. The Shameless Brown I got uneasy about Brown finally, and as there were no canoes at hand, I got a horse whereon to ride three or four miles around to the other side of the bay and hunt him up. As I neared the end of the trip and was riding down, the pathway of the gods toward the sea and the sweltering sun, I saw Brown toiling up the hill in the distance with a heavy burden on his shoulder and knew that canoes were scarce with him too. I dismounted and sat down in the shade of a crag and after a while, after numerous pauses to rest by the way, Brown finally arrived at last, fagged out and puffing like a steamboat and gently eased his ponderous burden to the ground. A coconut stump, all sheathed with copper memorials to the illustrious Captain Cook. Heaven and earth, I said. What are you going to do with that? Going to do with it. Let me blow a little. Let me blow. This thing's monstrous heavy, that log is. I'm most tired out. What am I going to do with it? Why, I'm going to take her home for a specimen. You egregious ass. March straight back again and put it back where you got it. Brown, I'm surprised at you and hurt. I am grieved to think that a man who has lived so long in the atmosphere of refinement which surrounds me can be guilty of such a vandalism as this. Reflect, Brown, reflect, and say if it be right, and if it be manly, and if it be generous to lay desecrating hands upon this touching tribute of a great nation to her gallant dead. Brown, the circumnavigator Cook labored all his life in the service of his country. With a fervid soul and fearless spirit, he braved the dangers of the unknown seas and planted the banner of England far and wide over their beautiful island world. His works have shed a glory upon his native land, which still lives in her history today. He laid down his faithful life in her service at last, and unforgetful of her son, she yet revers his name and praises his deeds. And in token of her love and in reward of the things he did for her, she had reared this monument to his memory, the symbol of a nation's gratitude, which you defile with unsanctified hands. Now restore it. Go. All right, if you say so, but I don't see no use of such a spread as you're making. I don't see nothing so very high-toned about this old rotten chunk. It's about the orneriest thing for a monument I ever struck yet. If it suits Cook, though, all right. Wish him joy, but if I was planted under it, I'd heist it if it was the last act of my life. Monument. Ain't fit for a dog. I could buy dead loads of just as such for six bits. She puts this over Cook, but she puts one over that foreigner. What's his name? Prince Albert. 
that cost a million dollars. What'd he do? Why, he never done nothing. Never done nothing but lead a gallus, comfortable life at home and out of danger and raise a large family for the government to board at 300,000 pounds a year. But with this fella, you know, it was different. However, if you say the old stump's got to go down again, down she goes. Like I said before, if it's your wishes, I've got nothing to say. Nothing only this. I fetched her a mile and a half. Mile and a half. And she weighs 150, I should judge. If it would suit Cook just as well to have her planted up here instead of down there, it would be considerable of a favor to me. I made him shoulder the monument and carry it back nonetheless. His criticisms on the monument and its patron struck me, though, in spite of myself. The creature has got no sense, but his vaporings sound strangely plausible sometimes. In due time, we arrived at the port of entry once more. Mark Twain Letter 22 Kealakakuba Bay, July 1866 The Romantic God Lono I've been writing a good deal of late about the great god Lono and Captain Cook's personification of him, and now while I'm here in Lono's home upon ground which his terrible feet trod in remote ages, lest these natives lie, that would, they would hardly do that, I suppose I might as well tell you who he was. The idol the natives worshipped for him was a slender, unornamented staff twelve feet long, Unpoetical history says he was a favorite god on the island of Hawaii, a great king who had been deified for meritorious services, just like our own fashion of rewarding heroes with the difference that we would have made him a postmaster instead of a god, no doubt. In an angry moment he slew his wife, a goddess named Kaikilani Ali. Remorse of conscience drove him mad, and tradition presents us with the singular spectacle of a god traveling on the shoulder, for in his gnawing grief he wandered about from place to place, boxing and wrestling with all whom he met. Of course this pastime soon lost its novelty, inasmuch as it must necessarily have been the case that when so powerful a deity sent a frail human opponent to the grass, he never came back any more. Therefore he instituted games called Makahiki in order that they should be held in his honor, and then sailed for foreign lands on a three-cornered raft, stating that he would return some day. And that was the last they ever saw of Lono. He was never seen any more. His raft got swamped, perhaps, but the people always expected his return, and they were easily led to accept Captain Cook as the restored god. The Poetic Tradition There's another tradition which is rather more poetic than this bald historical one. Lono lived in considerable style up here on the hillside. His wife was very beautiful, and he was devoted to her. One day he overheard a stranger proposing an elopement to her, and without waiting to hear her reply, he took the stranger's life and then upbraided Kaikilani so harshly that her sensitive nature was wounded to the quick. She went away in tears, and Lono began to repent of his hasty conduct almost before she was out of sight. He sat himself down under a coconut tree to await her return, intending to receive her with such tokens of affection and contrition as should restore her confidence and drive all sorrow from her heart. But hour after hour winged its tardy flight, and yet she did not come back. The sun went down and left him desolate. His all-wise instincts may have warned him that the separation was final, but he hoped on nonetheless, and when darkness was heavy, he built a beacon fire at his door to guide the wanderer home again, if by any chance she had lost her way. But the night waxed and waned and brought another day, but not the goddess. Lono hurried forth and sought her far and wide, but found no trace of her. At night he set his beacon fire again and kept his lone watch, but still she came not. And a new day found him a despairing, broken-hearted god. His misery could no longer brook suspense and solitude, and he set out to look for her. He told his sympathizing people he was going to search through all the island world for the lost light of his household, and he would never come back any more till he found her. The natives always implicitly believed he was still pursuing his patient quest and that he would find his peerless spouse again someday and come back. And so for ages they waited and watched, entrusting simplicity for his return. 
They gazed out wistfully over the sea and any strange appearance on its waters, thinking it might be their loved and lost protector. But Lono was to them as the rainbow-tinted future seen in happy visions of youth, for he never came. Some of the old natives believed Cook was Lono to the day of their death. Many did not, for they could not understand how he could die if he was a god. The Field of the Vanquished Gods Only a mile or so from Kealakakua Bay is a spot of historic interest, the place where the last battle was fought for idolatry. Of course, we visited it and came away as wise as most people do go and gaze upon such memories of the past when in an unreflective mood. While the first missionaries were on their way around the Horn, the idolatrous customs which had obtained in the islands as far back as tradition reached were suddenly broken up. Old Kamehameha I was dead and his son, Liholiho, the new king, was a free liver, a roistering, dissolute fellow and hated the restraints of the ancient taboos. His assistant in the government, Keahamanu, the queen dowager, was proud and high-spirited and hated the taboos because it restricted the privilege of her sex and degraded all women very nearly to the level of brutes. So the case stood. Liho Liho had half a mind to put his foot down. Kaahumanu had a whole mind to badger him into doing it, and whiskey to the rest. It was probably the first time whiskey ever prominently figured as an aid to civilization. Liho Liho came up to Kailua as drunk as a piper and attended a great feast. The determined queen spurred his drunken courage up to a reckless pitch, and then, while all the multitude stared in blank dismay, he moved deliberately forward and sat down with the women. They saw him eat from the same vessel with them and were appalled. Terrible moments drifted by slowly, and still the king ate, and still he lived and still the lightnings of the insulted gods are withheld. Then conviction came like a revelation. The superstitions of a hundred generations passed before the people like a cloud and a shout went up. The taboo is broken. The taboo is broken. Thus did King Leo Leo and his dreadful whiskey preach the first sermon and prepare the way for the new gospel that was speeding southward over the waves of the Atlantic. The taboo broken and destruction failing to follow the awful sacrilege, the people with that childlike precipitancy, which has always characterized them, jumped to the conclusion that their gods were a weak and wretched swindle, just as they formerly jumped to the conclusion that Captain Cook was no god, merely because he groaned and promptly killed him without stopping to inquire whether a god might not groan as well as a man if it suited his pleasure to do so. And satisfied that the idols were powerless to protect themselves, they went to work at once and pulled them down, hacked them to pieces, applied the torch, and annihilated them all. The pagan priests were furious, and well they might be. They had held the fattest offices in the land, and now they were beggared. They had been great, they had stood above the chiefs, and now they were vagabonds. They raised a revolt. They scared a number of people into joining their standard, and Kekua Kalani, an ambitious offshoot of royalty, was easily persuaded to become their leader. In the first skirmish, the idolaters triumphed over the royal army, and full of confidence, they resolved to march upon Kailua. The king sent an envoy to try and conciliate them, and came very near being an envoy short of the operation. The savages not only refused to listen to him, but wanted to kill him. So the king sent his men forth under Mayor General Kalaimoku, and the two hosts met at Kumu. The battle was long and fierce, men and women fighting side by side, as was the custom, and when the day was done, the rebels were flying in every direction in hopeless panic, and idolatry and the taboo were dead in the island. The royalists marched gaily home to Kailua, glorifying the new dispensation. There is no power in the gods, they said. They are a vanity and a lie. The army of idols was weak. The army without idols was strong and victorious, and the nation was without a religion. The missionary ship arrived in safety shortly afterwards, timed by the providential exactness to meet the emergency, and the gospel was planted as in virgin soil. Canoe Voyage At noon we hired a Kanaka to take us down to the ancient ruins at Honaunau in his canoe, priced $2, reasonable enough for a sea voyage of 8 miles, counting both ways. The native canoe is an irresponsible-looking contrivance, 
I cannot think of anything to liken it to but a boy's sled runner hollowed out. And that does not quite convey the correct idea. It's about 15 feet long, high and pointed at both ends, is a foot and a half or two feet deep, and so narrow that if you wedge a fat man into it, you might not get him out again. It seems to sit right on top of the water like a duck, but it has an outrigger and does not upset easily if you keep still. This outrigger is formed of two long bent sticks, like plow handles which project from one side, and to the outer ends is bound a curved beam composed of an extremely like wood, which skims along the surface of the water, and thus saves you from an upset on that side while the outrigger's weight is not so easily lifted as to make an upset on the other side a thing to be greatly feared. Still, until one gets used to sitting perched upon this knife blade, he's apt to reason within himself that it would be more comfortable if there was just an outrigger on the other side also. Sleepy Scenery I had the bow seat, and Brown sat amidships and faced the Kanaka, who occupied the stern of the craft and did the paddling. With the first stroke, the trim shell of a thing shot out from the shore like an arrow. There was not much to see while we were out in the shallow water of the reef. It was past time to look down into the limpid depths at large bunches of branching coral, the unique shrubbery of the sea. We lost that, though, when we got out into the dead blue water of the deep. But we had the picture of the surf, then, dashing so angrily against the crag-bound shore and sending a foaming spray high into the air. There was interest in this beetling border, too, for it was honeycombed with quaint caves and arches and tunnels, and had a rude semblance of the dilapidated architecture of ruined keeps and castles rising out of the restless sea. When this novelty ceased to be a novelty, we had to turn our eyes shoreward and gaze at the long mountain with its rich green forest stretching up into the curtaining clouds, and at the specks of houses in the rearward distance, and the diminished schooner riding sleepily in the anchor at the bay. And when these grew tiresome, we dashed boldly into the midst of a school of huge, beastly porpoises, engaged in their eternal game of arching over a wave and disappearing and doing it over and over again and keeping it up, always circling over that way like so many well-submerged wheels. But the porpoises wheeled themselves away, and then we were thrown upon our own resources. It didn't take many minutes to discover that the sun was blazing like a bonfire, and that the weather was of melting temperature. It had a drowsing effect, too, and when Brown attempted to open a conversation, I let him close it again for lack of encouragement. I expected he would begin on the Kanaka, and he did. Fine day, John. E ole iki. I took that to mean I don't know, and as equivalent to I don't understand you. Sort of sultry, though. E ole iki. You're right. At least I'll let it go at that. Anyway, makes you sweat considerable, don't it? E ole iki. Right again, likely. You better take a bath when you get down here to Honau now. You don't smell good anyhow, and you can't sweat that way long without smelling worse. E ole iki. Oh, this ain't no use. This engine don't seem to know anything but auri iki, and the interest of that begins to let down after it's been said 16 or 17 times. I reckon I'll bail out a while for a change. I expected he would upset the canoe, and he did. It was well enough to take the chances, though, because the sea had flung the blossom of a wave into the boat every now and then, until, as Brown said in a happy spirit of exaggeration, there was about as much water inside as there was outside. There was no peril about the upset, though, but there was a very great deal of discomfort. The author of the mischief thought that was compensation for it, however, in that it was a marked improvement in the Kanaka's smell afterwards. The Ruined City of Refuge At the end of an hour we had made four miles and landed on a level point of land upon which was a wide extent of old ruins and many a tall coconut tree growing among them. Here was the ancient city of refuge, a vast enclosure whose stone walls were twenty feet thick at the base and fifteen or twenty feet high, an oblong square a thousand and forty feet one way and a fraction under 700 to the other, 
Within this enclosure in early times, there had been three rude temples. Each was 210 feet long by 100 wide and 13 high. In those days, if a man killed another anywhere on the island, the relatives of the deceased were privileged to take the murderer's life, and then a chase for life and liberty began. The outlawed criminal flying through the pathless forests and over mountains and plains, with his hopes fixed upon the protecting walls of the city of refuge, and the avenger of blood following hotly after him. Sometimes the race was kept up to the very gates of the temple, and the panting pair sped through long files of excited natives who watched the contest with flashing eye and dilated nostril, encouraging the hunted refugee with sharp, inspirited ejaculations, and sending up ringing shouts of exultation when the saving gates closed upon him and the cheated pursuer sank exhausted at the threshold. Sometimes the flying criminal fell into the hand of the avenger at the very door, when one more brave astride, one more brief second of time, would have brought his feet upon the sacred ground and barred him against all harm. Where do these isolated pagans get this idea of a city of refuge from, this ancient Jewish custom? This old sanctuary was sacred to all, even to rebels in arms and invading armies. Once within its walls, and confession made to the priest and absolution obtained, the wretched with a price on his head could go forth without fear or danger. He was taboo, and to harm him was death. The routed rebels and the lost battle for idolatry fled to this place to claim sanctuary, and many were thus saved. The Place of Execution Close to a corner of the great enclosure is a rounded structure of stone, some six or eight feet high, with a level top about ten or twelve feet in diameter. This was the place of execution. A high palisade of coconut piles shut out its cruel scenes from the vulgar multitude. Here criminals were killed, the flesh stripped from their bones and burned, and the bones secreted in holes in the body of the structure. If the man had been guilty of a high crime, the entire corpse was burned. A STUDY FOR THE CURIOUS The walls of the temple are a study, the same food for speculation that's offered the visitor to the pyramids of Egypt he will find here, the mystery of how they were constructed by a people unacquainted with science and mechanics. The natives have no invention of their own for hoisting heavy weights, they had no beasts of burden, and they have never even shown any knowledge of the properties of the lever. Yet some of the lava blocks quarried out, brought over rough broken ground, and built into this wall six or seven feet high from the grounds are of prodigious size and would weigh tons. How did they transport and raise them? Both the inner and outer surfaces of the walls present a smooth front and are very creditable specimens of masonry. The blocks are in all manner of shapes and sizes, but yet are fitted together to the nearest exactness. The gradual narrowing of the wall from the base upward is accurately preserved. No cement was used, but the edifice is firm and compact and is capable of resisting storm and decay for centuries. Who built this temple and how was it built and when are mysteries that may never be unraveled? There were giants in those days. Outside of these ancient walls lies a sort of coffin-shaped stone 11 feet 4 inches long and about 3 feet square at the small end. It would weigh a few thousand pounds. Which the high chief who held sway over this district many centuries ago brought hither on his shoulder one day to use as a lounge. This circumstance is established by the most reliable of traditions. He used to lie down on it in his indolent way and keep an eye on his subjects at work for him and see that there was no soldiering done. And no doubt there was not any done to speak of, because he was a man of that sort of build that incites to attention to business on the part of an employee. He was fourteen or fifteen feet high. When he stretched himself at full length on his lounge, his legs hung down over the end. And when he snored, he woke the dead. These facts are all attested by irrefragable tradition. Brown said, I don't say anything against this engine's inches but I copper his judgment. He didn't know his own size, because if he did, why didn't he fetch a rock that was long enough, huh, while he was at it? Kahahumanu's Rock On the other side of the temple is a monstrous seven-ton rock, eleven feet long and seven feet wide and three feet thick. It is raised a foot 
or a foot and a half above the ground and rests upon a half a dozen little stone pedestals. The same old 14-footer brought down from the mountain merely for fun. He had his own notions about fun, I guess, and they were marked by a quaint originality as well. And propped it up as we now find it, and as others may find it a century hence, for it would take a score of horses to budget from his position. They say that 50 or 60 years ago, the proud queen Ka'ahumanu used to fly to this rock for safety whenever she had been making trouble with her fierce husband and hide under it until his wrath was appeased. But these Kanakas will lie, and this statement is one of their ablest efforts. For Ka'ahumanu was six feet high, and she was bulky. She was built like an ox, and she could no more have squeezed under that rock than she could have passed between the cylinders of a sugar mill. What could she have gained by it, even if she succeeded? To be chased and abused by her savage husband could not be otherwise more than humiliating to her high spirit, yet it could never make her feel so flat as an hour's repose under that rock would. Science Among Barbarians We walked a mile over a raised, macadamized road of uniform width, a road paved with flat stones and exhibiting in every detail a considerable degree of engineering skill. Some say that wise old pagan Kamehameha I planned and built it, but others say it was built so long before his time that the knowledge of who constructed it has passed out of the traditions. In either case, however, as the handiwork of an untaught and degraded race, it is a thing of pleasing interest. The stones are worn and smooth and pushed apart in places so that the road has the exact appearance of those ancient paved highways leading out of Rome which one sees in pictures. A Petrified Niagara The object of our tramp was to visit a great natural curiosity at the base of the foothills, a congealed cascade of lava. Some old forgotten volcanic eruption sent its broad river of fire down the mountainside here, and it poured down in a great torrent from an overhanging bluff some fifty feet high to the ground below. The flaming torrent cooled in the winds from the sea and remains there today, all seamed and frothed and rippled like a petrified Niagara. It's very picturesque, and withal so natural that one might almost imagine it still flowed. A smaller stream trickled over the cliff and built up an isolated pyramid about 30 feet high, which has the resemblance of a mass of large gnarled and knotted vines and roots and stems intricately twisted and woven together. Nature's Mining Achievements we passed in behind the cascade and the pyramid and found the bluff pierced by several cavernous tunnels whose crooked courses we followed about 50 feet, but with no notable results save that we made a discovery that may be of high interest to men of science. We discovered that the darkness in there was singularly like the darkness observed in any other dark place. Exactly like it, in fact, I thought. I am borne out in this opinion by my comrade who said he did not believe there was any difference. But if there was, he judged it was in favor of this darkness here. Two of these winding tunnels stand as proof of nature's mining abilities. Their floors are level, they are seven feet wide, and their roofs are gently arched. Their height is not uniform, however. We pass through one a hundred feet long, which leads through a spur of the hill and opens well out into the sheer wall of a precipice whose foot rests in the waves of the sea. It is a commodious tunnel, except that there are occasionally places in which one must stoop to pass under. The roof is lava, of course, and is thickly studded with little lava-pointed icicles an inch long, which hardened as they dripped. They project as closely together as the iron teeth of a corn sheller, and if one will stand up straight and walk any distance, he can get his hair combed free of charge. Brown tried to hurry me away from this vicinity by saying that if the expected land breezes sprang up while we were absent, the boomerang would be obliged to put to sea without waiting for us. But I did not care. I knew she would land our saddles and shirt collars at Cow, and we could sail in the superior schooner Emmeline, Captain Crane, which would be entirely to my liking. Wherefore, we proceeded to ransack the country for further notable curiosities. Mark Twain <laughs>